Welcome to the Makeshift CMO, a startup marketing podcast for founders and early stage company teams. All right, everyone, welcome to this edition of the Makeshift CMO. Today, I am so lucky to be joined by Curtis Beeman, who is the partner and national lead of Beyond IP Strategy at BLG, which is a major law firm, but Curtis himself is not technically a lawyer. As we talked about in the pre-show, I first met Curtis in the infancy of my startup career, what seems like forever ago, at this thing that used to happen called an in-person event, guys. Really groundbreaking stuff at a networking event where we talked about just crazy, innovative things through the Accelerator LSPARK. So I'm really lucky to have Curtis on today, who's going to provide, obviously, not marketing views, but a legal IP view on the amazing technology that you may be developing as a founder. Curtis, it is great to have you, man. Great to be here. Thanks, Bruce. Good, 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 good. We're so lucky to have you and dive in and ask what I like to call dumb person questions on a topic that I know the average person knows very little about. But I see from your work from home setup, there's a couple drawings in the back. Like, how has it been from a work from home perspective? Are you going crazy? Are you like, I'm ready to get back to the office? What's your views on that? It hasn't been too bad. So I, before the pandemic, I would work from home a day or two a week anyways. So I had an okay setup, obviously upgraded it. Our kids have been doing remote learning. So we have four young kids and they've been doing remote learning. So it's a lot of people online at the same time, but it's been good. They have each other to play with. I usually try to get outside for a little bit of playtime with them each day. And work-wise, the, the billable work for me is not too different. I find some of the non-billable admin or business development type work takes a little more time and effort. Our firm has been great. We were in the middle of a bit of a digital transformation. And so I think yeah. within a couple of yeah. days of everyone should work from home, even though law firms were exempt, we still had everyone. I think we had 97% of people working from home within two days of the announcement. The VPN held up. That's been really good. And we're looking as a firm to see what work is going to look like when all this is over. And I think it's not going to be the same as what it was before. A lot of people are really enjoying some of the flexibility. Uh, I am personally very much missing seeing people at work and the personal interaction. But if I went into the office right now, there are very few people there. So there'll be a little bit of time before that. But we have some really good collaboration tools so that Even though we can't see each other in person, it's still good to keep in touch. Awesome. Awesome. So let's dive into the classic origin story. You have a two plus decade career in the IP patent sort of field. I know you studied engineering as we discussed, but how did you come into IP? How did you decide you wanted to do this? So I often say it just kind of happened. So I was, yeah, I studied yeah. uh, electrical engineering at University of Ottawa and I took uh, five years to do a four-year program. So when I had to repeat a few courses, so when some of the people who I started with were graduating, I went to the placement center with them 
took a look around at the job postings, a lot of Nortel and that type of posting, but there was a posting for a patent examiner position at the Canadian Patent Office. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I always liked the technical aspect, but I was always the one who would write up the lab reports and I didn't love spending all day in a lab doing all the tinkering. And so it kind of kept it in the back of my mind. I think I actually sent a letter in to see if they had a summer position and didn't really hear back. But when I went the following year to apply for full-time jobs. I applied all over the place. I applied at the patent office. I applied at a few firms. Didn't really get much response from the firms. They weren't hiring or they were at least weren't hiring me, but I did get a positive response from patent office. And so I got a job there and worked there for about three years. Got a really good solid foundation in patents and patent examination. Did a lot of the training there. And then there was an opportunity that opened up on the patent agent side of things at a small boutique firm. And Mm -hmm. so I took that and I worked there for a couple of years, got a really great experience there. And then an opportunity presented itself at BLG and I took it and I've been at BLG for a little over 18 years now. It's a really great place, really great people and lots of interesting work. Awesome. Before we dive into the nitty gritty, I always like to boil things down in a fun way for the audience. Everybody's favorite IP story is probably, for me personally, at least, it's the Facebook movie where, you know, Eduardo Sabrin and Mark Zuckerberg are in the dorm room. They chat about whose idea was the Facebook and then the Winklevoss twins are, are suing them. So what are some mistakes, like really, really simple common mistakes that you see with founders when it comes to IP ownership, property rights, like maybe the third employee or an aunt who lent like, you know, convertible note at one point is like, no, 10% of this company is mine. What are some easy pitfalls that you see in that space? So, yeah. So one of them is kind of that scenario that you're talking about right now where things are pretty early on and it's more of like a handshake you know, everyone's kind of assuming that everyone's on the same page. And I guess one of the really big challenges for startups is that IP is often one of their most valuable assets, maybe if you don't even realize it at the time. And ideally, you'd want to protect everything, but you can't and you don't have the budget. And so you have to try and prioritize. And often you're spending or investing the money in other things to get the business up and running before you invest in the IP. And that can be good in terms of priorities and what you should prioritize when. But really, who owns the IP is one of the most critical things to figure out. And most of the discussions and disagreements happen when a company hasn't even been formed, right? You have a couple of people kind of working on a project starts to look interesting. Often if you have a company, at least you can get some agreement so that the IP rights are owned by the company. But before you get there, it can be tricky. And I understand that it can be a difficult discussion to have. And maybe it seems like a silly discussion to have early on, but I can guarantee you that it doesn't get any easier as time goes on. And especially as you get more traction and become more successful, it gets harder and harder to have those discussions and people's memories of the way that things were or how discussions went can change over time. And so I guess one of the really big things would be really figure out early, early on who owns the IP, who owns what, how much, you know, what happens if someone leaves, what happens if you take new people Mm -hmm. on, some really key stuff right at the beginning. So one thing, you know, when I met you through Spark, that my company was going through a was a fundraise. So there was the dreaded due diligence. I probably heard the phrase due diligence 
10,000 bajillion times in that year. But a lot of what I was talking about is, okay, for prospective investor, I have to turn over pertinent documents. So silly question, but for founders in that process, you've got to turn over like a lot of things that your company does. How do you ensure that you're not accidentally giving away trade secrets during due diligence? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, Really? I thought that was a silly one, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because one of the things is different investors are going to have different risk tolerances. They're going to have different, you know, they're going to place a different value on IP. Some of them think it's really important. Others, maybe it's not so important if you have other things going for you. Most of the time, if you're a startup, you're not in the position to dictate terms to a potential investor. Right, right. You have to go by whatever they say. And so if they want you to sign an NDA, you sign an NDA. If you want them to sign an NDA and they don't want to, you're probably not going to get them to sign the NDA. So if you do have trade secrets, try to keep them secret for as long as possible. Try to maybe only reveal a little bit at the beginning. And then when you have more of a relationship with them, that you can be more comfortable and you're both trusting each other more, you can release more. But the other thing is that you can file for patent protection on some things, even if you're filing just a provisional patent application. Even if someone were to disclose something, you have some record that in the patent office at that date, you had that invention. Even if someone says, oh, we were working on that. Anyways, I guess one thing to keep in mind is if you put yourself in a potential investor's position, they really want to know how can they protect their investment that they're going to put into your company. So they want to know, like, do you actually own what you say you own? Did you actually come up with this or did you steal it from someone else? If you have IP, does it actually cover what you're doing or what the competitor is going to be doing? You know, if you have a better funded competitor, what's going to stop them from just eating your lunch? And so there is a bit of an adversarial kind of different sides role to that due diligence. But at the same time, most of the time, you're both wanting to see the company move forward successfully. And so a lot of it is really having discussions about what's important to them. If you're not comfortable with revealing some of the secret sauce, then maybe you can say, look, We can give you some of this milestone and then maybe when we get to this Mm, other stage, mm. we'll be more comfortable to reveal some of that. And I would say if it's a potential investor who really has kind of the long-term goal in mind, they would probably be open to at least some of that flexibility. Exactly, exactly. One thing that I always like to ask to peel back the layers of what somebody with such a specialized specialty does is... You know, for me as a marketer, marketing is a catch-all thing. Like I could be a marketer for an autonomous vehicle company, but I could also be a marketer for a 3D printing company. And they're wild. Like I wouldn't do remotely the same thing at either company. But tell me about what are your favorite verticals of IP strategy projects to work on right now? Is it AV, AI, 3D printing? What's got you really passionate right now? So I have a high tech background. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot in kind of the electrical mechanical space, but also in the medical device area. And so I kind of like how some of the convergence of all the different technologies. So, you know, you have autonomous vehicles where you have a lot of the stuff that was in the telecom space that, you know, we would have worked on for years and years that's now coming into the transportation area. 
you have things that were traditionally just more mechanical type processes or products that now are having AI and machine learning built in. And so a lot of the time, I really like kind of those intersections of different technologies or different um, yeah. different verticals. And personally, you know, it can be a lot more rewarding working on things, say, like in the medical or healthcare space, where maybe you can see a bit more of a, you know, an impact on society than the classic another photo sharing app kind of thing where there's definitely value. So it's funny because, you know, you're saying you can do a marketing person and doing very different mm -hmm. things at different types of companies, but probably also be doing in terms of core functions, you'd be doing very similar things. And so as, you know, an IP strategist and a patent agent, even though I can really drill down in some areas where I have deep expertise, there's also an aspect of being very much a generalist and where you can take, especially on the IP strategy side, where you can take learnings from different areas, different verticals, and help to apply those in those different areas. And so I really enjoy doing some of that. One of the things actually that I found in the last few years that I wasn't really super familiar with kind of CMO as a role or as a title. And yeah. I personally find it's kind of a really interesting mix that to me really relevant to IP and kind of strategic use of IP because at least and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, it seems like there's a kind of an intersection of business strategy, of product marketing, really knowing what the differentiators are, kind of the secret sauce, the branding and how yeah. that plays into things. And then the communications, who's disclosing what at a conference or what's going to be released on the website, what the partnerships are. And so it seems to me like someone in a CMO type role has a unique set of perspectives on a lot of different areas that touch on some of the important aspects of IP, whether it's patents, trade secrets, trademarks, copyright, or the kind of the softer things, maybe like the agreements with uh, employees, with contractors, or, you know, acquisitions or joint venture agreements. It seems to me like someone in that position would be more aware of more of those things than most other people in an organization. I don't know. What do you think? I think so too. Whenever I am about to publish a piece of marketing material, sometimes I'm thinking like, Am I allowed to? Like the classic is client case studies. I'm like, okay, I just wrote this, but am I violating any like NDAs? That's my actual fear yeah. all the time on a daily basis. But getting back to that strategy piece, you know, for an early stage software startup, there can be a lot of confusing terms like patent versus copyright versus trademark, trade secrets, confidentiality agreements. Help us understand what needs to be a part of every software startup's strategy when it comes to their IP on that level. Sure. So I guess the first thing is, if you think about intellectual property, it's kind of a set of tools that you can use to help bring value to your business. And even though sometimes you might focus more on patents or on other types of IP, it really is a whole set. And I think for me, one of the most important things is for a company to be aware of all of the different types of IP and to really know if something is going to be important at a certain stage. So, I mean, just to give some general ideas, so patents generally protect new and useful inventions. So whether they're specific products or it could be software per se is technically not patentable, but you can patent software by protecting the method or the memory that holds the instructions for executing a program. And so really, if it's something that has a functional advantage, then that's something that you would typically protect with patents. And one interesting thing is a patent doesn't give you a right to practice your own invention. What it gives you is the right to exclude someone else from oh, practicing that invention. Oh, 
is that why there's always, sorry to interrupt, but is that yeah. why you always hear these news stories, especially on the drug side? It's like, oh, this drug's patent is about to expire. They got it like 50 years ago or Viagra's patent is about to expire. You got to get in. Somebody's got to try and invent something that's like mildly related to something that helps down there. So they, you know what I mean? You hear about all these like patent troll stories. I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but. Well, I mean, so certainly, so patent would last for 20 years from the original filing date, which is almost like an eternity for a software company. But um, yeah, the thing is, this is where some of the strategy comes in because you can be patenting or trying to patent say, you know, the current version of your software, and that's going to evolve and iterate, and it's going to change all the time. But sometimes if you step back and you say, okay, wait a second, we've actually come up with this foundational tool that we use to write our software, mm. and we might want to patent that. Or I mean, iterative process. Or iterative process or whatever. I mean, yeah. I think that Slack is one of those stories where, you know, it was kind of more of a video game development thing and they had this messaging aspect that was embedded in the app and then they kind of saw the value and they spun it out. So, you know, sometimes what gives your company value and what you're going to put in your pitch decks is what you're going to want to try and protect from an IP perspective. But sometimes it's also those backend aspects that maybe are not client facing. And as long as it's not something that you want to keep secret, as long as you can, it could be a really valuable thing to invest in. I'll maybe just touch on a couple of other things just to give some context. So trademark, protect a word or a logo or a design that identifies the source of a good or a service. So like the Nike swoosh, the Apple logo or something like that, something that really tells you this is coming from that company. And if you saw a knockoff that was using that same logo, then that would be running afoul of that trademark. And so one of the great things about trademark protection is that it's pretty much indefinite that almost everywhere you can renew a trademark every 10 or 15 years. And that's why you can have super old trademarks. I don't know, like a Rolls Royce or a Coca-Cola where it's the same trademark that goes on and on and on. And they really invest heavily, not just in the trademark itself, but on the branding that surrounds it. And you also have industrial designs is what we call them in Canada or design patents in the US. And that's where you protect the look, the aesthetic appearance of a finished article. So it could be something like the shape of a Coca-Cola bottle. It could be the look of a toaster. It could be the shape of the AirPods, right? And a lot of IP, when you look at a particular product or a service, it spans different types of IP. So like AirPods, I mean, I have the pros, the original ones. I wasn't so big on the look, but you have to admit that when you saw someone wearing them, you knew exactly what they were. And you exactly. knew who made them, right? And it was the same thing even before the AirPods, just with the white color for the Apple headphones, right? Before that, almost everyone, it was black. And so they used just even the color white or something like that as something that is kind of a cross between trademarks and trade dress, but it's all IP. So one of the things that I really like to help companies understand and learn more about is that it's not just kind of the things that you hear in the news or you think about. It is really a lot of the stuff that brings like, why is your company successful? And what would you really be upset about if a competitor started doing that specific thing? 
those are the types of things that you should really try to invest in in terms of IP protection. And I'll just touch briefly. So trade secrets is something that obviously that has a business value and that you are intentionally trying to keep secret. Some things you're going to want to keep as a trade secret as long as you possibly can, like the Coca-Cola formula, the KFC blend of herbs and spices, the algorithm that Google uses to rank search results. Other times you're going to want to keep something as a trade secret, at least temporarily, until you figure out if you're going to try and get some other type of protection. So advantage of trade secret protection is it can be indefinite. The big disadvantage is if it gets out, then unless you're relying on an NDA or something like that, you don't have really any recourse. And then if someone else independently comes up with the same thing, then trade secret protection isn't really going to help because it's not like they stole it from you. They just might have had a very similar idea independently. Based on the information in the last 20 minutes you've told me, if I'm starting a software startup, what I'm gleaning is your code is a trade secret. Anyone you revealed your general method to make them sign NDAs, make it clear who owns each piece of that IP Am I quasi on the right track for how a founder should approach their IP? That's pretty good. I mean, yeah, definitely <laughs> you want to be solid on who owns the IP and mm -hmm. you have it, get it in writing. Maybe it's going to be a pain. Maybe people are going to be, you know, complain about it. But if you don't get it in writing, it's almost not worth anything. And trade secrets are not something that you file like in a patent office or something like that. But you do have to have some measures in place that you're trying to keep things secret. So whether it's physical security on your office space, whether it's cybersecurity provisions, access restrictions on different folders and things like that. Because if something happens, I mean, you might have heard of, you know, there was Uber and Waymo. There was an employee that stole trade secrets and I think they settled for like $250 million or something like that. Yeah. And the employee was actually sentenced to like 18 months in prison. Tesla had a whole series of suits for trade secret misappropriation. And we even have some kind of war stories where someone walked out of a company with trade secrets on a USB drive and it took them probably like $100,000 in forensics and things like that to resolve the issue. And thankfully, in that case, it ended up okay, but it could have destroyed the whole company. And thankfully, the person who took the stuff returned it and, you know, they didn't copy it anywhere else. But so there's not that it takes stories like that, but certainly it's better to learn from when it happens to other people than learning the hard way. Awesome. Awesome. So there's a lot in there when it comes to founders protecting their IP. Let's talk about the other side. Okay, they're doing well, they're looking to scale. As they look to grow globally, let's say this company is doing half decently well, and they think they might have other people who want to copy this idea. How do you ensure that that IP strategy stays strong as they scale? So one of the important things is to be conscious about having an IP strategy and that it develops as you develop your business strategy. So it's not like you set your IP strategy in the first year and then you kind of look back at it and see, you know, are we still doing what it says? Okay, good. If you're evolving your business strategy, you have to evolve your IP strategy so that you make sure that it's actually relevant and it's helping you to be successful. And so if you are going from a more kind of domestic focus to really branching out more globally, and you're wanting to exclude other people and keep them out of your space, 
patent protection is going to be something that you're going to want to look into. And then you're going to want to look at protecting your technology in the countries where you're doing business or where you want to be doing business in the next 20 years, which is a pretty long time horizon, or where you want to have the ability to Maybe you don't want to do business in those countries, but maybe you want a license to different people. So you want to be able to say, I'm going to give you the license to this patent or this set of patents for Europe. I'm going to give you this other person the license in China, this other person license in India. Obviously, you can't afford at almost at any stage to get protection in every single country in the world. Even the biggest pharma companies don't patent in every single country. But you do want a patent in the countries where that you're, you're going to have doing business. You're yeah. critically doing business and your competitors are critically mm. doing business. So if I'm developing a self-driving car, but I realize that there is some country with no infrastructure to, you know, most of the countries in the world don't have the infrastructure to do that, then I don't have to bother filing or considering them in my IP strategy because it's like, how would they compete with me anyways? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Cool. I think what I would, maybe I would expand it a bit and I would say that you want to think about all those things, mm. make a conscious decision not to do something. So not necessarily just ignoring a specific country because they don't have the infrastructure because 20 years is a long time, right? So if you're going to be really successful and the last five years of that 20 years is probably going to be a lot more valuable than the first 10 or 15 years. And so if there's a chance that that specific country is going to be a big enough player at that point and you have the budget to consider it, then it's worth making a conscious decision and not just ruling something out right from the start. One thing, as I learn more and more about the tech startup world, there's two things about a company that are super valuable, but hard to value. And A, the strength of your people and your IP and your trade secrets. One question I had was, your IP is not really captured on your balance sheet. Like I know some balance sheets are trying to capture that, but how do you as a founder kind of build that into your value? And on the other side, as an investor, how do you factor in? Should investors be placing a premium on companies that have a really solid IP strategy, even though that's not necessarily reflected in an Excel sheet? So I'm obviously biased, but I think that, that <laughs> yeah. definitely be taken into account. And I mean, yeah. even in this past year or so, BDC now has a whole IP-backed financing group that, that yeah. was operating as a separate company, and now they're part of BDC. And so they have really sophisticated ways of valuing intellectual property and lending to companies when other people wouldn't necessarily either be lending or maybe providing some other type of funding. I mean, it's kind of like everything else. Like if you have IP is really a big part of your business. And I would argue that most companies nowadays, IP is really a big part of your business. I mean, if you think of, I don't know, even like 50 years ago, and you look at kind of the most successful companies, a lot of their value was in the actual physical products that they were making, their manufacturing facilities and stuff. And now there's so many companies where you can't point to very many of those things other than your people. And even your people, a lot of that is the intellectual property that they're holding. So I would say one of the things is, even if you don't have a lot of IP assets in terms of a big portfolio of patents or trademarks, if you have a well-articulated IP strategy where you can say, look, we know this is not important right now, but we know that at this stage, we're going to be focusing on this. And at this next stage, we're going to be paying attention to this and have set aside some money to invest in that. That is going to be much better from a valuation, from a you know, likelihood of success of raising funding 
than if you just say, yeah, we don't really believe in patents because we're doing open source or things like that. So the other thing is really valuation is a whole other topic. And I mean, there are consultants and accountants and people who do valuation of IP on a really in-depth basis. You know, there are all sorts of different ways and a cost basis and a market basis and all sorts of different things like that. In the end, a lot of it is kind of like if you're looking in the real estate market, like something is worth what someone is willing to pay for it. And certainly there are different ways of having some metrics and stuff. But in the end, it really depends on, you know, you could have an amazing product, you could have an amazing IP, but if there is no one who wants to invest in it, if you have no real chance of success against some more formidable competitors, then there's going to be less of a evaluation regardless of what the metrics are. But there is definitely a priority and a premium on intellectual property more so than it used to be, even for the investors or you know the people that you're going to do business with who might not traditionally place a lot of emphasis on IP. As such a deep tech in enthusiast who is really in the deepest definition of the trenches on some of this stuff. What is, open question, what is one technology trend that you are just super, you can get specific as you want, super bullish on for the future? That's a difficult one for me to... Uh, Had to stump you somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah stump me. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many really kind of fascinating and interesting and really valuable things that are going on. I mean, you know, I've had a chance even this past year to work on some stuff on the AI front, on the 3D printing front, a couple of really interesting COVID-related inventions as well, even though it wasn't on the kind of vaccine side of things, but more on the PPE and the kind of device side of things. So really, that's one of the things that I love. About the, the, wor the work must work. have not slowed down for you at all with people just being like, I've invented this you know, somebody probably tried to patent the mask like the shape of the mask or the shape of the face shield i don't know like you never yeah, know i mean there's i personally you know i had a lot of i had some downturn in some of the work definitely just because some companies were obviously struggling and so they had to reallocate funds and stuff and or defer some spending others there wasn't really a big change but yeah and then you have a lot of activity from companies who wouldn't have otherwise had activity either in general or in those specific areas but that's one of the things that i love about working in ip is you're working with amazingly gifted people who are coming up with really cool technology and they're kind of by definition working at the forefront of technology and oftentimes there aren't a ton of people who really understand what they're working on outside of the kind of the core group within their company. And it's really exciting and fascinating and part of what makes the work so interesting. The signature question on the makeshift CMO is everyone who comes on this podcast is what the broadest way that life calls them a high achiever. When we think about a patent agent who's a partner at one of the largest law firms nationwide, being a family man, all of those things, how do you deal with the dreaded B word? We call that ugly word of burnout. How do you deal with it when it's just all too much? You're working from home. You just want to go outside and do something, but you're burning out and you can feel it. How do you deal with that? What are your coping strategies? 
So definitely have a few, and it's actually very timely. One of my partners actually just wrote an article on LinkedIn about going through a burnout recently, and it happens a lot. It happens a lot with, as you said, high performance, high achieving people. For me, you know, I have a few different things. So first of all, my family. I mean, I think it's helpful that, you know, obviously I have my wife and my kids, but also just more extended family and people who care for you, but also in a nice way, they don't take your job so seriously that, you know, sometimes if you have tons of stress at work and stuff and it kind of bleeds into everything else, it's good to have people in your life to remind you that, hey, there's a lot of other stuff in life that's important. For me also, my faith is important to me and it really Mm -hmm. grounds me. And so, you know, I take time every day in terms of prayer and Bible reading and things like that. Uh I don't do my kind of BLG work on Sundays, regardless of how busy it gets. And so I know every week, regardless of how crazy it is, there's one day that I'm not checking the phone and the computer's not getting turned on. And that's a habit that I developed even when I was in engineering. And it was hard. Like there's a ton of stuff that needs to be done. And if you're trying to get it done in six days instead of seven, it's not going to be easy at the beginning, but it's definitely something that's worthwhile. So I honestly, I recommend that people really build in a regular break in your routine. To me, a full day is something that is really important, but maybe some people, you know, it's going to be a half day one day and then a half day another day. I also, in the last year or so, was really fortunate to have been able to take a sabbatical. And so I was off for three months, two months at one time and another month. And that's something that our firm has a provision for. And it was just a really amazing experience to not just the fact that I was able to do that before all of this COVID craziness and yeah. be able to be able to. You have to take your sabbatical. Just, yeah. Imagine if you had to take your sabbatical. It's like, all right, this is it. You're just, this yeah. is your sabbaticals to couch. Yeah. Um, and even when I take time off, whether it's a week or two, the kind of regular vacation, even a family day weekend, I took the Friday off because our kids had the day off of school. Yeah. And I personally, I temporarily deleted my Outlook app from my phone and deleted our firm's kind of instant messaging app. I should have so that I didn't that. even have the temptation to do it. And that's something that I did when I was on sabbatical and I found it was really freeing. And now if it's something more than just kind of a couple of days, I really try and do it because I mean, as you probably know from personal experience and probably most of your listeners, especially when we're in a working from home environment, but just in general, even if we're not working from home 100% as founders, as business owners, you know, your work doesn't finish when the work day is finished necessarily. And so personally, I think it's really important for everyone to have some way to build in some real true way of disconnecting for however long it is so that you can look forward to it. And it kind of makes the days and the stressful times, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you can have that to look forward to. And it's really, for me, it makes a difference and it's made a difference over a a big number of years. And I'm very thankful that, you know, I don't think I've really hit kind of a big B burnout. I've probably had the smaller instances of it along the way. And I think part of it is having kind of built in some of those strategies and just having you know, my family and my faith and other things to help keep me grounded as well. That self-awareness that we hear emanating from all of that, probably over many, many years of tinkering with your schedule throughout your career has really helped. As we come to the end of our time of recording, let me ask, what is something you want to plug in the marketing land? We call it the CTA, the call to action. What's something that you might be working on that what you're passionate about that you want to plug for the people that are listening to this show? 
Yeah, excellent. So maybe offer one little kind of tip first, and then I'll talk about that. So the one thing that I think is worth mentioning is in terms of an IP strategy and what you should do and shouldn't do, one kind of really practical tip is don't disclose what that invention is or that secret sauce is before you've had a chance to make a conscious decision about whether you want to get some sort of IP protection or not. So it's maybe hard, but you know, don't tweet or post on social media or write a blog or uh, one of the other things is offering a product for sale. There are some timelines that start uh, or even presenting at a conference or just discussing with a client without an NDA. So just kind of a really practical thing is that at least think twice about it and have a discussion with an IP professional and say, is this something that I really should be concerned about? And if yes, you know, can you kind of walk me through it so that I, I don't make the wrong decision? And then one thing that I, I mean, I'm super excited about the last month or two, we launched, we went to market with our Beyond IP strategy program. So this is congratulations. Part of larger, thank you. Yeah. So we've been working on it for four or five years internally and kind of trialing it with some clients. And it ended up being part of the launch of BLG Beyond, which had a number of managed services and then advisory services. And Beyond IP strategy is one of the sets of advisory services. And really, it's a way to help companies and empower companies to really be more aware and better equipped from an IP strategy perspective to use IP as a business tool and to help leverage that IP to bring value. And so I'd really encourage anyone who's interested, you know, feel free to contact me. You can go to blg.com slash beyond IP strategy. And really one of the reasons that we came up with it is because I know from experience that IP is not cheap. It's not something that you know, is inexpensive. It's not something that's super intuitive all the time. And it's something that if you're not careful, you know, the costs can really blow up over time. And so one of the reasons we came up with the specific IP strategy programs is to have kind of some discrete fixed fee programs with some discrete deliverables that if you really don't know where to start, or you've started, but you want to get to the next level, there's a really concrete way of getting something that can help you get on the right track. And so something that I'm really excited about, we have a really solid team of professionals across all of our offices nationally. And it's really something that we're excited about that we're starting to go to the market with. And so I'm really uh, thankful that we're able to have a chance to introduce that to your listeners as well and happy to chat with anyone who would be interested about that. That's awesome. Literally, I will include a link in the show notes, but pretty simple. You just Google BLG and Beyond IP strategy. It'll pop up uh, right away. We are so lucky to have had Curtis on and teach the dumb guy a little bit of what was the MVP of an IP strategy right here. Curtis, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Makeshift CMO. If you want to follow what we're doing to help early stage startups, founders, and marketers subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. For all business inquiries, please email us at bruce at thebannermarketing.co or follow us on IG at banner.co.